0: I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's
1: self-actuating.
0: I'm Claire Salmi.
1: I'm Cole Wozniak.
0: And I'm Fiona Hatch.
1: This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier.
0: This is 1050 Bascom.
1: Episode of 1050 Bascom, we're excited to welcome Jehan Vilbert, a current MIPA candidate at the La Follette School of Public Affairs at UW Madison. Jehan holds a bachelor's and master's in law, with a particular focus on fundamental rights, and spent his early childhood and early adult life in Brazil before moving to Wisconsin. He is also currently teaching the American Foreign Policy class within the Political Science Department. Today, We'll talk to Jehan about his career teaching law and working as a judge in Brazil, before turning to look at Brazilian politics more generally. We'll also ask him about his research and teaching interests, which he's explored throughout his time at La Follette. We had a really interesting conversation, and we learned so much. We hope you will too. Awesome. Well,
0: first of all, thank you so much for being with us today. It's great to talk to
2: you. Thank you for having me.
0: Let's, before we jump into some of the more nitty-gritty details, could we start with a little background about you and kind of your college career and your educational pathway? Like, maybe tell us where you went to college and what you studied.
2: Yes, I live in a small city, I guess the size of Madison. But in Brazil, this is a small city in Chapeco, countryside of Brazil, south of the country. So it's a kind of cold region for our standards. And so it's not this hot Brazil and... That people normally think in terms of Rio de Janeiro or or São Paulo. And I used to play soccer there. So I was playing soccer and at the same time people say, you better study. (laughs) Brazil, you better study. And I didn't know exactly what to study. So people said, I mean, you like studying, so you should go to medicine or something like this. But I didn't see me doing this. Kind of work in hospitals and then i like to read and then law was the thing that came to my mind and differently than here in the united states in brazil law is uh, undergrad so you can go from high school to law so basically i went from high school to five years of law it's a, it's a very interesting shock i think because you start learning about rights and how to exercise rights in a place like Brazil specifically, this is very interesting because you see how many things are wrong in your country So it was a very good experience although I today I don't study law anymore But I guess it was part of the process and my family was very very poor very very poor So when I was a kid we, we lived basically in Islam for 10 years or so. When I was like 13 or 14, my family improved a little, the country improved a little in the 2000s so my family, I guess, was pull up as well. So we improved a little, we were able to to move to a better neighborhood so I need to do something that will guarantee my future and the future of my family. So given that I like to study and I had the perspective of maybe get a scholarship people said you need to do something that will really change the life of her family because that medicine was something that i guess everywhere in brazil if you're a physician will be basically rich in terms of professions and law it's still law in brazil is something that you can do a bunch of things you can become a lawyer you can become a public official so it was a kind of obvious choice because it was a path that if I study enough, if I was a good a good student, probably I would be able to do something uh, profitable in terms of income. And obviously as I was poor, I, I had this interest in how can we change things. And I guess one obvious way to change politics and the structure of uh, where people live is changing laws. When people told me, oh, laws!" yes, law, I can do nice things, I guess. When I was a kid, I, I saw my friends being arrested and... Parents being arrested and families that were obviously destroyed. So I thought, well, oh, I, I guess I could be a good lawyer. I could help these people. I don't, I, I don't think laws are fair in Brazil, and I don't think criminal no laws, statutes are fair. It seems to me that there is a clear, uneven distribution of crime burden. So if you are poor, if you are black, and you live in a poor community, the cha- chances are that you will be arrested at some point. And the perspective that you have in terms of job, income, I, I knew that I was an exception because my family, even though we were poor, we are so close together and I was not black so it was easy to me to see these kind of things but looking at my friends they had father or mother normally single parent so to me it was like a way to connect these two interests I want to do something uh, to help my community and people that are around me and at that moment at the same time it was a chance to change the, my life and my family's life so law was a perfect way I guess to do this uh, considering the environment where I was living in
0: yeah, absolutely. Wow, that's a very unique story compared to a lot of the people we have on the podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting to hear about how different the law process is or to get a law degree in Brazil versus here mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Actually, going into our second question about teaching law in Brazil, what kind of courses did you teach? And uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that ended up leading into you becoming a judge?
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, I. I, I taught a lot of things because different than the United States. I guess being a professor in Brazil is not so hard in terms of career path. It's it's you finish your your degree normally, you go to a specialization and a master, and you can be a professor. Different than the United States, that normally your path is to get a PhD, and it's much harder I guess here because I guess academic career pay more here than in Brazil. So you don't have a good income even as a university professor uh, normally. So it was not hard to transition because I was a very good student I guess in terms of grades and. I, I was really interested in research, so people, since I got half of my course, starting saying like professors, uh, encouraging me to, okay, maybe you should think in terms of academic career, and I said, yes, I think I would be happy being a professor, because I was seeing how education was changing my life, and I thought, okay, I guess I can do this for other people, and, and I, I felt so welcome, and how people were telling me that we could change things, so what I did is basically, before finishing my, my law degree, I started a specialization in procedures and then I study criminal procedures and civil procedures. And uh, the university hired me first as a lawyer, as assistant lawyer. Basically, I was working for the university, going to hearings in, in the courts and helping other professors. And basically, they would work on the petitions and I would go to the hearings and work with uh, things working happening on the ground. And this gave me some experience on jurisprudence. So in the next year, the university hired me as a professor to work with procedures and jurisprudence. So I was basically teaching criminal procedure and, and jurisprudence. That was my first experience with how law really changed things on the ground. So it was good because I guess I was a good professor because I was seeing how judges and courts act and how they change things for good and for bad or how they don't change things that they should maybe. Being able to go to classroom and, and my university was very, I guess, especially because we were in the countryside, uh, poor families, families that come from agriculture and they are trying to shift professions from their parents, from agriculture to other professions. And they are very eager to learn uh, how laws, for example, can transform things. So that was a good, good place to be. Because of my my work on the courts, I, I met several judges and one of them told me that another career path if i want to do things uh, differently would be to be uh, within the system and in brazil different than united states uh, judges are you can be appointed politically but then you will be a justice in the superior courts but Starting as a judge, we don't have elections, so the way you become a judge is basically taking tests. So you have these civil and trans tests, you go and take a test, you need to work for three years. And one of the judges told me, you should go, you should come, work with me, and then take the test and become a judge yourself. You could do much for the people that you believe should deserve more if you are there doing justice every day. And he convinced me that the judges help justice to become true, like taking things from the paper and put on practice. So it's basically, you have these laws, but they are just a bunch of words written on a paper. You want to make them become something real? And judges are basically the head of the whole process that make those things become real. And I, I, I end up accepting his invitation to work with him, and I worked with him for almost three years. So, in my case, for example, I, I became a, a judge in São Paulo, and my in my test uh, we have. 12,000 people for 50 places. Oh, wow. And so yes, it's so one way to, to change your life financially speaking, you study law, you work for three years or as a lawyer or as a judicial clerk, that was my case then, and you take this test but your income will completely change. And obviously the, the work is interesting in terms of status, social status, you become your honor, your excellence or something. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 it's obviously all this status and the fact that you judge and you have all this power It's highly competitive. You need to study for sometimes six, seven, eight years. I guess this is the normal path. I was fortunate enough, I guess, some luck, some study, and I passed very fast in two years or something. So I became a judge with 27 years. Very, very young I was. So I ended up being a judge because I met the right person that convinced me that one way to to make a difference was to get into the system and to see things from within.
0: Yeah. And what was... I guess, what was that experience like? Like, what types of cases were you mostly hearing while you were acting as a judge?
2: Interesting, because when we start your career, you don't have much choice. You you basically work with everything. So if you are very high-ranked, you can choose what with it you want to work with. In my case, I kind of chose. But normally, we start with civil prosecution, child problems, criminal problems. So And then after, as your career is going on, you can start, like, trying to go to the right city where you could work with just one or other thing. So when I started my career, I went to the countryside, uh, and countryside in Sao Paulo is close to Sao Paulo. In my case, I I was in the metropolitan region, but in a smaller city, working with everything. Bankruptcy, crime, and depending on the day, they will send me to different cities around Sao Paulo and I will work with basically everything. But I wanted to to work with crime, criminal law, so uh, after a year and something, I was able to to come to Sao Paulo, capital, and then I basically with crime organization and working pretrial hearings that's basically who is arrested is brought to the judge and then we decide if this person can be released or need to to remain in jail so basically I did this for almost four years
1: so what made you end up wanting to leave law in Brazil
2: Once, I I guess, I I got to the point that I can do a bunch of things now that will still help my family financially, so that was not a big concern anymore for me. I I can teach law outside, even in university, so I was okay with that, then I guess my force that was driving me, I still want to change things. And the day where I noticed that definitely you you cannot change much within the system, you can touch people's lives individually. Obviously, if somebody sits in front of you and this person made something that is considered a crime and you can make a good decision, you can. You may help that person specifically. And as a judge, in, in smaller cities you do have a lot of powers and then you can really change the life of those people living in that city. But institutionally, Uh, you do very, very, you don't do much, Mm. to be honest. Uh, So in Brazil, when you see that everything is wrong, starting with this judicial system and how laws impact people's lives, I was, I was the opposite was happening. I was basically enforcing a law that I think is not totally fair. So uh, at some point I started feeling the opposite was happening. I I don't think I'm, I'm doing what I was supposed to be doing that was trying to make communities uh, better. And then I returned to the idea that maybe I should be a professor and work with research, things that I could propose, I like, things that I guess could change lives of people in this more broad sense.
1: So what was your primary research interest when you came to Madison as you said you started to pursue research?
2: I guess the thing that I learned and that was the reason that I would never regret the time that I, uh, I work as a judge. I always thought that you just need to change laws and this was a mistake. You definitely you can have good laws in bad institutions because formal institutions can destroy uh, law enforcement even the law, if the law is good. This is not the case of Brazil. Law, laws are not good there. But it doesn't mean that we just need to import, for example, good laws and that will change things. What I learned being a judge is that the political environment, political landscape, and especially the economic situation of a country, to some extent influencing the political landscape and how law is enforced. enforced. And so what I learned is that we need to put these three things together, laws politics and economics. So when I decided to move and I was choosing universities to apply, I thought that I, I, I should go to a program where I would be able to put these three things together. I, I went to study political economy, but how legal institutions interact with political economy. So that was a kind of impossible plan. How can I study these three things together? Normally programs, they are econ programs or they are political science programs. Some places offer social policy programs with law, but normally they don't work with these three things together. And because I visited here and I went to La Follette, and in La Follette they basically study political economy if you want, and they are flexible enough to say if you want to put law together with this, it's totally fine, you can do it. So to me it was a perfect program, and apply applied for one program, one place and I got accepted and I, and I came because it was the problem that, okay, I, I need to go to this problem. Basically this, I didn't know exactly what exactly I wanted to study. I was very sure that I needed to put these three things together and I, uh, the M A will help me, master will help me discovering how I will do that.
0: So we know right now you're teaching a course here on American foreign policy, but if it's okay with you, we'd love to touch on the politics in Brazil, which have been receiving a lot of attention over the past few years, both because of the Bolsonaro presidency, but also because of the comparisons that some people in the media have drawn between the former president of Brazil and the former president Trump. So for those who might not have a background in this area, could you briefly tell us about the basic structure of the Brazilian government and kinda of what's going on there?
2: Brazil is very similar to the United States, to to some degree we have a presidential system, so we have this president as the main person, we have a legislative, two houses, Senate, House of Representatives. So it's it's very similar if you see on the surface. But a very interesting thing is that the United States, you had these colonies, and you have a confederation. You had a confederation in the past, and then these end up becoming uh, the United States. This federal system. So we have this system that is built from states to the center. In Brazil, it's exactly the opposite. We had a big central state that becomes a big, this big country that they just split into parts to better administrate. So the difference that the president in Brazil have has much more power than the United States. So. For example, institutionally speaking, Bolsonaro had much more power than Trump. So I guess this is an interesting thing, because uh, in terms of the political structure, for us, uh, the president is more important, and politics maybe is more important for Brazilians than is the United States. Uh, when I visited the uh, United States in 2019, I talked to people and Trump was the president, and their reaction was, yeah, Trump is the president, but we still are doing our things in brazil especially if you are poor it's very hard to do your things if you have a president that's not there and we could feel this with the pandemic that was so hard in brazil for poor people so i guess the difference that i see in terms of politics politics is more important sometimes it's strange to to, to talk about this in the united states because politics is important everywhere but for us maybe politics is even more important because uh, the government is always there is always present, and it's specifically in terms of the, the system, the president has so much power in Brazil. So for example, Bolsonaro could really pressure governors to work with him because basically the whole financial system and revenues in Brazil are concentrated in the federal level, different than the United States where states have their own rates, their own taxes. In Brazil we don't have this, or, or we just have what the constitution says that they can do. So this makes politics a little different and makes president to be able to really drive politics in Brazil in a way that I think is impossible to do in the United States. So when uh, Bolsonaro was elected, some people said, oh my goodness, now we are in trouble. I mean, people survive for, for four years. So we are not in a good situation now, even after this new election. So how the system is being built in Brazil is not a good way to, to organize a, a system to help poor people. So I guess this makes a little the system a little different.
1: There's um, one article that you wrote about the Brazilian Supreme Court as well and its relationship with the president and the structure in Brazil, government-wise. We were wondering if you might want to talk a little bit about the role of the Supreme Court in Brazilian politics and also how it engaged with some of Bolsonaro's policies, especially under COVID, which as you mentioned was a difficult time for many communities in Brazil, and some of the ways that how it engaged might have been concerning for Brazilian democracy.
2: This is interesting because probably it was kind of contradictory because I just said that the president is so powerful. But at the same time, we live in Brazil sometimes this chaotic institutional framing because the president was supposed to be super powerful. And if you read the constitution and the laws, you'll see that he should have all the power to do almost everything. But at the same time, different than the United States as well, we don't have clear constraints to the judiciary and specifically to the Supreme Court. So different than the United States, uh, the Supreme Court defines its own judgments and its own trials and its own competence. So they decide what they are going to adjudicate. The result is this: is that at some point if in Brazil we have 11 justices, if they decide that they will take more proactive steps towards public policy, for example, they can do it. And there is no uh, institutional checks to balance this relation. And this happened with Bolsonaro. Uh, People thought, I guess, this was a consensus that things were not working specifically in the first month of the pandemic. And then the Supreme Court just decided that they were going to rule things and decide how we would distribute vaccines and how things will work. And I think most people saw this as a positive action. But at the same time, in terms of institutional quality, you don't want to have a judiciary that is basically ruling the country. It's dangerous. It's, this is not exactly what we expect when we read how powers should should interact and how the what's the role of of the judiciary and judges. I guess most people will agree that judges don't rule. It's interesting because we can see how the constitution organizes things and how powers should act and how the president could be powerful, but at the same time, these sometimes informal constraints, for example, how judges will react to a strong president. And Bolsonaro, in this sense, he was a strong president. He wants to do things his way. He will say that he will not close the economy, he will not close the country, but he will try something to do this in one day, in the other day, the Supreme Court will say that you have to close everything, lockdown. The Supreme Court basically established lockdowns across the country. So we had kind of an institutional struggle during the pandemic. And obviously, if you are trying to bring some coordination to a critical situation, it's very hard if at the same time you are having this institutional chaos. So it's interesting uh, because uh, we have on one hand this strong institutional presence, but at the same time we have this Supreme Court basically dwarfing. the the presidential powers, and that's exactly what happened in Brazil.
1: So I'm curious about the structure of the Brazilian Supreme Court, especially compared to that of the United States. Is it similar to our structure in that there's nine, or in Brazil's case, 11 Supreme Court justices and one chief justice? And is the whole thing as partisan as it is generally in the United States?
2: So uh, I think in terms of the structure, the Supreme Court had each justice has much more power than here. They can make a lot of decisions uh, as a single entity. Most of these decisions were made singularly. But even though we have 11 judges and justice, nine of them were against Bolsonaro. So even though they don't agree among them in a bunch of other topics, they agree that they don't like Mm -hmm. Bolsonaro.
1: So another follow-up about the legitimacy of the Brazilian Supreme Court. Did the Brazilian public generally view the Supreme Court as more legitimate than the previous President Bolsonaro in these decisions?
2: Yes, exactly. So most of these cases were brought from the state level. And so we have it today in Brazil, and we had a time like a 50-50 population now division. I guess any choice you make will be okay because you have 50% of support in terms of population of support but in terms of politics I guess Bolsonaro was isolated so it was easy to give the the Supreme Court legitimacy because they are basically in this struggle where they still had majority of the political system because Bolsonaro was elected and soon after the election he lost his party he was a non-party president, which in Brazil is a different thing. We never had this before. He left his own party soon after the election, and he created a new party. So basically, he lost his majority. So I guess he, he lost also his powers to, to enforce his own ideas.
0: I think a lot of people criticize the, Supreme, the way the Supreme Court acts here right now, saying that they don't have enough, they don't take enough creativity, I guess, in interpreting the Constitution that we have, and they're too conservative in refusing to amend it at all. But on the other hand, a lot of scholars, particularly we're looking at the book How Democracies Die by Levitsky and Ziblatt, would say that democracy is actually threatened when the judicial branch gains more control over a nation's policies in that way. How do you balance that?
2: There is a huge trade-off you want to have better laws so when you see your constitution has 200 some years 300 years and and you are i, I don't think this is um, mirroring our current social situation and you feel hopeless that you cannot do something about that it seems that at some point you want to push for reforms and then if the judiciary could just have some creativity that would be amazing but at the same time and then if you open this door you don't know how big this door will be in the future. I guess this is the trade-off. And in Brazil we are seeing maybe the, the opposite scenario. Uh, if United States the door is too narrow, in, in Brazil the door is too wide. It's a very I'm not answering the question I guess, but you want to have a middle ground if you don't have minimal structure for your for your institutions. If you don't have a guideline and if the way you, you you rule a country, and if your institutional basis is basically rebuilt every day, and justice decide changing to change things every day in the databases, and you just need five, six to change how your whole country is structured, so this is I have to agree with Levinsky. It's a it's a very serious situation, not just for democracies, because today people may say, but. Even if you, don't, if you don't consider yourself, well, I don't think democracy is necessarily an end in itself. You have China, so you can have a system that is a liberal autocracy, that no, doesn't need to be like China, but you can have in these poor countries development through another set of institutions that are not democratic. Even if you agree with a train of thought like that, How can you invest in a country? How can you spark development in a country that people don't feel safe to invest because you don't know what's coming tomorrow? So I guess there are several ways to think that this is not good that this flexibility of institutional flexibility it's very close to institutional weakness institutions are very weak in Brazil and this may reflect on how the Supreme Court think they can reform and change things because at the end of the day institutions are, are weak, they are just playing the game as the game is, you don't want a Supreme Court that is connected to majorities so you want them to sometimes define and protect minorities specifically when you're talking about human rights so not all cases are very sympathetic and nice like this one. They are opening the constitution to a new interpretation that will help uh, gay marriage that is something that should happen, in my opinion, everywhere. Not all cases are so interesting uh, to be liked like this one. And they are lifetime justice, so they will be there. And now, I guess, a new trend is that presidents appoint very young justice, such that they can be there for Mm -hmm. many decades. So Mm -hmm. they are appointing people that To be very honest, they don't have a life story uh, within the legal world. Some people even question their real ability with law. So they they are supposed to be people that everybody will respect for their knowledge, for their story. Uh, They they are. uh, They aren't.
1: It's definitely a strategic move on their part, yeah. We wanted to turn a little bit also to the media's role in Brazil, which we know you also wrote an article about. Um, We were hoping you might talk about how anti-democratic leaders can sometimes seek to suppress criticism uh, in the press. And we were wondering how that's playing out in Brazil and how it did play out under Bolsonaro's presidency in particular. And if you think that any of those trends might continue with the new president.
2: I guess uh, we have different strategies. Bolsonaro adopted a very Trump kind of strategy, so he was just barking against the media and this destroyed the credibility, this destroyed trust. People don't know what they should believe because they have the media, now he shouldn't trust the media. Should we trust Twitter? Should we trust social media? It's, it's very, this kind of discourse puts everything like at risk in terms of how you structure your social trust coming from institutions and even a like day-by-day experience. So I guess this was his strategy, and he did a lot of damage. Probably Lula, the next president, will adopt a more institutional strategy, and some people fear this, some people think that he will not be able to do it anyway. He proposed in his first terms that we should regulate media, and obviously when we talk about media regulation, is always something very concerning. We don't know exactly what media regulation means, probably probably less freedom, and this is all uh, uh, concerning, I guess, in any case. The the situation now in Brazil was very interesting because in Brazil we have this big, big company that is uh, almost a monopoly in terms of media. Global has 80% of uh, audience and rates, and, and the market in Brazil is that we don't have CNN, Fox, struggle, as we have in the United States. People may disagree with Fox or CNN, depending on where you are in the political spectrum, but we still have this struggle that I guess is healthy for a democracy, or could be healthy, depending on the situation. Sometimes it's terrible because lack of coordination, lack of trust. But at the same time, you still have this debate happening. In Brazil, we don't have this debate. So it's an interesting thing. Depending which president the media will pick, uh, we basically have media against social media. So I guess the situation with Bolsonaro in in his winning election was media against him and against social media. So it's, it's a very interesting case because in Brazil I think it's particularly interesting to see how media plays and interesting, some, I guess, especially in the radio in Brazil, some specific uh, segments were kind of changing sides and going in favor of Bolsonaro. But then we had a new player, again, the Judiciary, because these, in this last election the Judiciary played a very, very proactive role, saying what could be said and what couldn't. And some people, even I guess in whole spe- political spectrum, people were very concerned about that this may be censorship. So this is a very interesting thing. I, I, it's a new thing. We didn't have this in the in past elections. So now we have like a judiciary, like very proactive, very proactive in the election. So it's now we have the media, I guess, and also uh, judges.
1: So are the Brazilian elections generally considered legitimate in terms of voter turnout? And... Are there certain populations in Brazil that are allowed to vote, some that are perhaps discouraged from voting?
2: Yes, voting in Brazil is is mandatory. So vote is mandatory. Interesting. Yeah, it is mandatory. It's it's a very different uh, set because we have this first week, first weekend of October, and then last week of October. Sunday, everybody goes, everybody votes. So it's electronic, so you go there. End of the day, we have the results. But I guess in terms of distribution we can say this was was fair. I don't see just poor people. I, I guess was very even distribution in terms of absence.
0: What did Lula do in campaigning that was different from Bolsonaro? Or did it not even really matter?
2: Oh, I think, uh, despite of all this, I guess people were kind of... Uh, the new thing was the judiciary. I know how much the judiciary was able to impact, it's hard to know. I guess people were very used to this difference in terms of levels of campaign, and money, and media, people are used to this, this is not a new thing from Brazil, and, and if you t- if you try to read these, normally uh, media support, uh, you cannot predict uh, election outcomes given. So I guess this was something that people were not reading, uh, how much media Bolsonaro Lula will have. And their campaigns were very similar. Both were saying bad things about the other, uh, we are not sure about exactly what the programs were, what they are really proposing, so it was more about I don't like Labor Party, Works Party, or, and I don't like Bolsonaro, and or Lula was a criminal.
0: And a lot of people expected Bolsonaro to reject the results. I mean, among all the comparisons they draw between Bolsonaro and Trump, that was mm. a big one. But he didn't do that. Were you surprised by that at all?
2: He did, in fact, he did. Uh, recently, last week, he- Oh, he, recently? Yeah, <laughs> le, last week. He filled a, a complaint saying that they found a bug in, this, in the electoral system because we use mm. these electronic uh, devices. So they found a bug. And then he said that we should nullify part of these bailouts and exactly the part that will give him 50%, 51% of the vote. So he, will. But the, again, the judiciary is very important. Maybe I'm biased, but they just ruled uh, against him and I guess they imposed a fine of 4 million. Saying that the, that bug didn't interfere in the results and uh, it's still reliable and they hired some external consistency to show that that thing was not a problem but he did at the end of the day he wait for two weeks and then he did he, he really... But now we don't know like exactly Because, again, people start to block streets. And, and and so we don't know exactly what is going to happen. Because this was so recent. It was two days ago that they ruled against him. I guess any, anyone that was there and was in the process, there is nothing indicating that we had any problem in terms of legitimacy of the even the turnout or the electronic system. It seems that everything was okay. So I don't know if he will support any... He never said that... All truck drivers that were blocking streets and things were wrong. He never said. But I guess I don't think he has the support of other people around him to really do something more extreme. I guess he doesn't have the support. So maybe this will refrain him from doing something as we had here January 6th. Right.
0: So there's a difference there in the amount of public opinion.
2: Public opinion and political support uh, around him. Mm -hmm. Okay.
1: So we wanted to switch gears uh, over to your American foreign policy course, but before we do, uh, is there anything else about Brazil and Brazilian politics that you think that we should talk about before we wrap that up?
2: I guess the the only thing that is, is interesting is that we can think how things will play in the U.S.-Brazil relations now, because we we had an interesting thing. People thought that with Trump and Bolsonaro, we have a, this approximation because they were similar in several senses one thing that is interesting that i may say is that they were they were similar but i don't know how this will sound but what trump said that he would do he did or he tried so he said i will try to make immigration very hard and he did everything he could to make immigration as hard as possible i will appoint conservative justice to the supreme court and he did this until the last minute of his term bolsonaro said i want to have a free free market economy, he did everything in the other way around. So he expanded all social programs in place. He appointed liberal justice, progressive justice too, to the Supreme Court. So the, the funny fact about Bolsonaro is that um, people now... say, Okay, now now it's what's coming in terms of Lula? In terms of politics, I guess not much will change. What will change is how the world sees us how our influence, because with Bolsonaro people didn't talk to him. And with Lula we'll have, again, international policy, maybe some respect from other countries. So this probably will change immediately. But in terms of political outcomes, I'm not sure exactly what will change because basically Bolsonaro embraced previous policies that were in place. And now we have Biden and how Biden will communicate with Lula and how U.S. Brazil relations will will play. I'm very interested, I'm not sure about uh, how we now can integrate because, for example, uh, Brazil has a somewhat close relation with Russia, given the the trade uh, that we have with pork and other very important commodities. So it's a kind of strange relation right now. And I'm curious to see how Lula will, will try to reestablish Brazil in the, in the global order. I think the only thing that to add is that it's interesting how, how this international net will relate. Will, that, that I think connects with foreign policy.
0: I think that's a good segue, speaking of American foreign policy, into the class you're teaching. We want to just really quickly shout out the fact that you're doing that. And we'd love to hear what your favorite part about teaching that course is right now.
2: I guess uh, it's, it's it's even hard to answer it's because I like so much American foreign policies. I think I split the class in three parts, and I like them all. Uh, we start with a historical perspective, trying to to show why is that so important to talk about foreign policies. Basically, uh, it's 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 an important question with all those discussions about America first and why should. Americans concerned about what's going on in other places of the world. So we start with this point and I really like this because it starts connecting with past uh, policies that United States may have implemented in Latin America, coups, and uh, this is very interesting. Then uh, we shift to models. So basically, in fact, political science is social science, we have flexibility, but we still have models. We want to understand things from a scientific perspective. So I really like this part because we Teach students how to see things differently. We want them to get into these doors and be able to understand things outside these walls, but we want them to do this scientifically. That they have a different perspective, they can see things from a more, I would say, accurate, but from a different perspective. I guess this is the point, as scientists. And then, once they have this historical basis and this theoretical basis, then we dive into what's going on around the world. And obviously this is super nice because now we have latin america with this new pink tide we have these leftist leaders being elected everywhere in latin america so how this will play in terms of uh, american policy uh, across the region and we have russia and we have ukraine and china and taiwan so obviously then we use this historical background and these models that we learned to try to answer these questions What what's going to to happen uh, with Ukraine and with Europe and what may happen if China decided to invade Taiwan Would they do this? So yes, this, yeah. current events are very interesting
1: And it's a, it's a big can of worms and we're realizing that uh, we're coming up at 1 o'clock and we want to be respectful of your time So uh, we wanted to wrap up with a fun question uh, asking, so I don't know really any good Brazilian food in the area or really what the best Brazilian food is so, do you have any recommendations
2: for people? So interesting because depending where, where you are in Brazil, people have very different answers about what's Brazilian food. <laughs> <laughs> I live in the south of the country, and so it's kind of a cowboy part of the country called Gaúchos <laughs> in Brazil. So we eat a lot of meat, and we call it barbecue here in Brazil. We call it churrasco. Mm-hmm. So if you want to taste a very to try a very different churrasco, a very different barbecue. Uh, you can go to Samba. Uh, it's, it's a very good restaurant here. Uh, Brazilian restaurant. Soft Brazilian restaurant. So this <laughs> is my, I guess, my, my suggestion. You we'll would definitely like It's a very different kind of meat. It's delicious.
1: Interesting.
0: I'm glad to hear there's some option I know, I, I, really I was honestly sure.
1: expecting, there's not much. It's <laughs> Madison, it's Wisconsin.
2: Yes, there is no much. Uh, I mean, because we have like beans and rice and other things that are very, very typical in Brazil and Northwest um, uh, food that we cannot find here. Uh, yeah. But at least you can find meat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah if
0: nothing else, we you do eat. have that. <laughs> Well, thank you again so much for being with us. I think this conversation could go much longer if we had more time because it's just (laughs) like fascinating to me to think about these things. But we really appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.